Good afternoon. It is Friday, August 14th, and uh, it is the second day of school here in Tampa, Florida, and I am enjoying the peace and quiet and not having to tell teenagers to be quiet while I am on the radio. We have got a really fun show for you today. We are going to be interviewing the author of a book called The Responsible Entrepreneur. And while being responsible doesn't sound like much fun, you will absolutely love our guest, Carol Sanford. Carol, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are going to be talking uh, primarily about your book, and and I love the tagline about uh, the four game-changing archetypes for founders, leaders, and impact investors. And, you know, we we all have very different personalities, and, and they kind of change as, as the venture goes on. I, I am a serial entrepreneur, so I am a great subject uh, for, for your uh, information that you're going to be sharing with us. And it's very timely because I've just started yet another uh, venture. So, uh, so excited to dig in. But before we start talking about the book, I always like to hear about you. Well, let's see. I guess uh, there are a couple of things probably worth laying groundwork. First, I also am a serial entrepreneur. I've started and run uh, three companies and sold them to fairly large enterprises. That was a very long time ago, but a great learning experience. It led me to uh, over 30 years of doing uh, what I call educative consulting because it's not like I give people a program, but I've worked with everything from DuPont and Procter & Gamble down to smaller businesses like 7th Generation, currently still actively engaged with Google. Uh, I have conv- moved more of my uh, educative work now into an academic setting. I am in a joint venture, Carol Sanford Institute, with the University of Washington Business oh, cool. School. And we are taking all of my 40 years of work and embedding it into a program there called the Responsible Business. It's for CEOs, edu- um, executives, and entrepreneurs who want to grow their businesses innovatively and responsibly. And I'm very excited about that. But, of course, one of my favorite things to do is to speak. And so I'm still a keynote speaker for over 50 events a year around the world. And I love these kind of conversations. So let's go. <laughs> well, terrific. Well, I, I tell you what, uh, traveling to 50 different events a year uh, just makes my head spin a little bit. I've been in the travel industry my whole life, and my current venture is actually creating travel widgets for events. So, uh, you know, dealing with the people who are coming to hear you uh, at all of those events. So uh, we, we already have an intersection there. But uh, let's let's just dive in. Now, your first book was a book uh, about creating a responsible business. And tell us a little bit about what the catalyst was for writing that. I had worked with, uh, for 20 years by then, fairly large corporations for long periods of time. People don't let me go once they get me inside. Mm -hmm. I'm there for three to eight years, and in fact, they have to commit to three years before we start, because it takes quite a while to get the mind to really think about business differently. and. Uh, never have called what I do. The word sustainability didn't exist when I started, and responsibility is not a term I ever used. I always just talk about running great businesses and doing it in a way that you 
create great financial returns. People love working there. Suppliers consider you their favorite customer. You're able to create health in the communities. And investors, you know, earn earnings are constantly growing, but responsibly. So those folks I've been working with um, always referred me. That's how all my work had been. But then I started to have people who said, I'd love to talk to one of these folks. And they said, please write a book. We can't talk to all the people we think you should work with. So I did. This book is 15 stories in detail. I call them case stories uh, that tell exactly how they achieved the stories are, uh, let's see, who's in this book? And that book is Red Hat, very old, uh, uh, very great little company that right. created a lot of the open source success we know. DuPont, whom you all know, you, everyone knows, and I have two stories in there uh, about DuPont. Colgate South Africa and Colgate Europe, uh, seventh generation. And then I won't go on, but you get the idea. And it is really how it happened. And wow. I was always a co-thinker with the CEO and everyone in the company. So that first book is how to run a great business. I put the word sustainability and responsibility in the title because Wiley made me, because it was a popular topic. I think that's how you do things. <laughs> I mean, I think responsibility is how a really successful business runs. You don't need to say the responsible business, but I had to. So I'm now really happy that I have. And, of course, it gave me a franchise for the second and soon-to-be-out third book. Oh, I love it. And and the new book, or the book books that we're talking about today, The Responsible Entrepreneur, actually won the Entrepreneurship Book Award from 800 CEO Read. And 800 CEO Read is one of the places where, where we go to find, uh, you know, great guests for our show. And another place that we go uh, is actually looking at, at the most popular TED Talks. And, you know, love the fact that you have spoken multiple times at, at various uh, TED uh, events around town and around around the country, so uh, but that's a great franchise because you can do so much with that. Well, and the fun part of the new one, the responsible entrepreneur, I mean something really different than most people think. They think of social entrepreneurs. And social entrepreneurs are good people, have nothing bad to say about them, except they don't change much. They (laughs) usually create a great product, but it's an alternative product. It does not change the course of an industry. So this book, The Responsible Entrepreneur, is really about how you do everything I talk about in the responsible business. And then in The Responsible Entrepreneur, these are my clients, colleagues, and students, and how their small businesses grew and changed the course of history. So that's Mm -hmm. what I mean by responsible entrepreneur. Well, I want to be in your sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the new one, uh, the new book is called The Responsible Human. Ah. about how individuals fundamentally change first their own life and then bring a radically different view to a large uh, community that wow. gets a platform that they can really make a difference with their life. Very so yeah, maybe we have to do a podcast with you for the responsible entrepreneur. Oh, I would love it because, you know, the description on your website of this book is that this book is for those who dream big, promise more, and keep raising the bar. Right. And you know, I've I've been in my industry for uh going on 36 years now and I've had my consulting company for 20 years and you know specialize in you know a very very specific part of the travel industry of of the underlying technology that makes it go, right? You know, right. nobody can book travel to anywhere if the underlying systems aren't there and and so you know we're we're actually turning the industry on its head. 
and uh, you know just this whole notion of going to an event or a venue instead of going to an airport or a city center, which is where the <laughs> travel industry makes you go, right? And you have to do all the homework to figure out where you actually need to be. Right. And so uh, we have built the where I need to be uh, booking engine, which you know has never existed before. So wow. you know I want to jump right into uh, talking about the book because again, you know if somebody pulled this off the shelf and saw the responsible entrepreneur. You know, I mean, they might uh, question themselves of whether they've been irresponsible in the past, which, I, you know, is, is certainly something that you think of when you see that word. But but you're really talking here uh, about a tool set, I believe, you know, which is the tool set of understanding who you're working with and, and how to get things done, right? I think and so you, you start ahead. out talking about why we need a new kind of entrepreneur. And I want you to tell us just in your own words, why do we need a new kind of entrepreneur? All of us are born with, with entrepreneurial potential. And by that I mean we all have the potential to exercise strong personal agency. Combination of parenting patterns, schooling patterns, the way work is structured tends to slowly destroy that option. The ones we call entrepreneurs are the ones who couldn't function in any of those systems, broke away, probably drove their parents crazy, their teachers and every boss or any boss they had. And they did that and took off to make a difference that was unique to them. So right. that's just like ordinary entrepreneurs, which are amazing and are, you know, really an engine for all sorts of things. But we found often that what was happening with entrepreneurial energies, it became a bit self-centered. And so sometimes it would grow in the direction of greed or it would grow, as you said, it could be irresponsible and not intentionally so, but just not knowing, not paying attention. Yes. So then emerged the, the social entrepreneur. And the social entrepreneur still was paying attention to doing something unique that made a difference, but they added something really specifically, which is what I call external considering. Uh, my grandma grandmother used to grab me by the back of the neck when I was being uh, a ruffian or doing something that you know was impacting others negatively and she'd say don't you ever consider anyone besides yourself and of course at that age I didn't so I call that external considering because the social entrepreneur is really thinking about others but they're usually creating as I said earlier a product or a service that doesn't necessarily change anything it provides a way to see that it could be done differently but the sad part of the social entrepreneur is they often lose their own essence their own uniqueness in that process where a regular entrepreneur is it's all about me I'm you know I'm proving I can do something but I, those need to all come together. And what the stories I have in this book and the folks that I work with and what I teach are how you hang on and, in fact, enrich and deepen that personal agency from connecting to the deep essence of who you are that no one else can be because they can never be you. You have the external considering to make a difference, but you add one more thing to it, which is what I call promises beyond ableness, which is why I have that opening on my website. Right. Promise to do something really big, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but there are four basic domains that those promises get made in, which are huge, and they are course-changing in terms of where history plays out. So that was well, why we needed a, a new name. We needed it all integrated. That That is so interesting, and uh, you know, I Something hit me actually last Friday. I, I had 
two weeks ago gone off for my 25th wedding anniversary with my husband, and we actually took our, our teenagers with us on, a, on our 25th wedding anniversary trip. And I, I got some physical rest that week, and I, I left uh, all my electronics at home. First time ever in 25 years we've vacationed without my laptop and cell phone. Mm. And when I came home, you know, I, I had some refreshing, you know, from, from that. Again, really just the physical side. But a couple of days later, I decided to go to a leadership conference uh, that was being held here. And it was actually a, a remote conference that was being held in Chicago, and it was simulcast out to a quarter of a million people in 110 countries. And in, in the course of watching that event and listening to amazing speakers, uh, and they had these little vignettes in between each one of the speakers – and you know i've i've been involved in giving back and i talk about it and you know that that is a core element we we uh one of our taglines for our company is changing the world one trip at a time and so i'm sitting and watching this vignette with this guy from walgreens who had been at this conference the previous year and had been inspired uh by another vignette that he saw of Tom's shoes where you know the the uh sell a pair of shoes give a pair of shoes and he thought well how can we do that in my company right and for this big behemoth called uh Wal Walgreens he had to go around to all of his peers and you know he finally uh you know runs across the senior people who say you know we love the idea but we just can't afford it right we can't afford to give and so he finally makes it to the CEO who says hey I, I like it. It's right for us. Find a way to go pilot it. And so he finally does. And long story short, they, they show this little vignette of somebody getting um, a, a vaccination, right? And, and it was obviously somebody who could afford to pay for it. And then you saw a picture of somebody who couldn't afford the vaccination getting the shot. And, Carol, I had this visceral, physical reaction when, when I saw that picture, and again, I mean, I see lots of things like that, but this one reached out and grabbed me, and, and you know, it was like God was speaking to my soul saying, you know what, you think this new venture is all about innovation and turning the industry on its head. It's really about the 10% you're giving back out of every dollar, because if you're a billion-dollar company, you're giving back $100 million, and that is going to create true and lasting change, and so what I wanted to say about all that and I'm sorry to take up so much of your time but no it's great the reason I bring that up is because I don't think entrepreneurs stop long enough to really look back at themselves and so one of the reasons they appear self-centered is because the chief executive officer like me is really the chief everything officer because we don't have a staff to send things off to right so anyway yeah. I, I i just wanted to plant that seed with you because i think that is really important as people sit down with this book and i hope they do sit down with the book with a pen in hand because as they're reading each and and you've got it beautifully organized in, into these four parts that talk about the, these things that are so important for us to pay attention to but i i encourage people after they listen to this interview Go get a physical copy of this book, even if you normally read Kindle, and sit down and write notes in the margin of this book. Because if you stop long enough to work on your business, you know, to get out of working in your business, I think you really can change the name of the game. So part one of the book is changing the world requires game-changing roles. And you've got two stories that are a part of this. So why don't you share with us uh, this whole Focus on really changing the game. 
Well, the reason, well, first, congratulations on 25 years. That's very exciting (laughs) and taking time off. I think that and we the still way, want to be with each other. So. Yeah, of course. You have to spend time. Um, the thing that was important to me is once in a while I do use the word change the world, but I think that when we say change the world, we're often thinking we have so many things that no matter what your perspective is, feel like they're not working well. And that's probably been true of all of history. So we think about let's go do something that changes it now. But really the way the world has been changed is usually by kind of like a nodal intervention from a person or a pair of people or maybe a family who decide that they're going to completely change the way things are done and they build enough of a platform that they begin to change literally the course of history. And so I've taken actually four stories uh, uh, that represent these four arenas of history. But the, the characteristics then are the ones I spoke of earlier where they start to feel this latent entrepreneurship, and they begin to think about how is it I would really do business if I were doing it the way I think is most systemically healthy. It makes everything whole, and that's kind of how I interpret the word responsible. As a result of that, they start to build a world using a very different worldview. Now, one of the things I found in the years that I've read is that people who have really made huge changes often have either a mentor or an archetype in their mind. An archetype I'm using uh, comes from my Native American history. I'm, I'm very little Native American, only about 16%, but I have a great-great-great-grandfather who was full-blood uh, Mohawk and a part of the Trail of Tears, which came from sort of where you live, but in Atlanta, and ended up on a Native American reservation. And he said that my grandfather who you know got these stories passed along, said one of the things they were taught when they got to Oklahoma, where they'd lost 90% of the tribe and, in fact, 90% of all the people, he said in order to rebuild something in a way that it's better the next time you build it, you must take on roles, and they aren't ones you're necessarily comfortable with, but they are ones that need to be played, and you may rotate through them. So it occurred to me as I was interviewing and talking, and then, of course, many, most of these are my clients or students, how all of them were working with something in their head that helped them rise above what they would have done out of their own ordinary kind of mechanical way of doing things. So that's kind of what that opening is about. And I have a story out of why Botswana didn't fall in at that point, although there looks like some risk now. But 100 years ago, they did not fall. No, 200 years ago, they did not fall into what South Africa, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and all the others did with the colonization. They really rose up with a nation which was really good for all. So that's kind of a quick and dirty overview about what I mean about that kind of opening and using roles to take it on. Right, right. So um, you you talk then about the four game-changing entrepreneurial roles. And, you know, I, I'm not uh, – I, I want to let you speak this in your own words, but, you know, you've got these other parts of the book that begin talking about the structure uh, behind their approach and – and this whole need for a transformative uh, framework. But let's go back and let, let's talk first about the four game-changing entrepreneurial roles. Yes. All right. Um, so, again, back to my great-great-great-grandfather. The four archetypes that he laid out, which had to be played, were the uh, warrior. And by warrior, he didn't mean the one who 
fights, he meant the one who asked what's worth fighting for. And often we don't do that. We're so busy, we have long lists, and we don't say what's worth putting energy into. What would really make a difference? So the, the warrior archetype is the first one. I changed its name to modern terms, which we can come back to when we talk about it. I think it will be easier to understand without it. The second archetype was the clown or the court jester. Now, if you've watched any uh, old movies or read all the books about the, the days of royalty when they had a court jester, the court jester was the one that could say things that needed to be said that no one else could say without hearing off with your head. So the clown is the one who really stirs up, speaks to the elephant in the room. They often do it with humor, which would be some of our modern day stand up comics. If you ever listen to what they're talking about, it's often social commentary. It often oh, yeah. makes cringe. You don't, you think, why would anyone say that? But as my great great grandfather said, that has to be a part of bringing about great change. The third archetype comes from the hunter archetype. Now, again, the hunter was not the one that went out and just hunted, although they did organize people to feed the community. But they ask, how do you keep the ecosystem healthy so that feeding is a long-time possibility, which meant that everything in the ecosystem could feed and do well and be healthy. Um, the third archetype was the, he said, head man, I say head man and head woman, because in modern times we do have native tribes that have women who are chiefs or chieftains or uh, head, head woman. That role was about improving the quality of thinking and acting. So here you have this warrior who's saying, what should, we, what should we fight for? What's worth fighting for? The clown who says, hey, pay attention to this. It's kind of you know, really important and we're not noticing. The hunter who was saying, how do we keep the ecosystem to feed our bodies and our souls healthy? And the headman said, or headwoman, how do we engage with one another? How do we think in a way that's more stemic and holistic? And if you think about that, you've got to have all four of those to create a business. What I found was, and you don't, you don't actually assign people those roles. It's like they rise to them at different points in time, and you rotate because you may at one point need a, a, a business that you're in, a community that you're in. It may have no warrior, and everybody's fighting everybody instead of someone saying, wait a minute, are we fighting for the right things? So once you put those four together, you have the ability to rebuild and renew and regenerate how you build to create something new. Is that, that enough of what the archetypes are about? It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, one more. I think I just lost you. Are you still there? Oh, yes, I am. Good. Okay. Yeah, one of us uh, must have hit a button. Um, anyway, uh, so what I want to know is, is Carol, at different times in the entrepreneurial venture, do we move between those roles, or are we pretty much, you know, one primary and maybe a secondary? Um, really good entrepreneurs use all four. And they're very mindful that even a situation, even a moment, say, for example, they may move in with their children in a, to a conversation that is coming from the warrior. And it's a quiet, calm role, and they'll need to do that also in their business, saying, well, you're fighting for something. Does that really – why? Think about that. 
a lot of the time when you're the CEO, you're thrown into the head man, head woman role because you're trying to hang on to a very large picture, and it's a moving dynamic one with a million things coming in. One of the things that I teach when, at the university where I teach, and I lecture at five different universities in addition, and when I'm working with clients inside of a system is I say, you must learn all of these. You must learn to feel when they're needed. You will likely feel more drawn to one role, but if you stay only in it, it will weaken your ability to take on other things that need to happen. And it's not a matter of, of switching between them just, you know, for switching sake. It's really about becoming appropriate to how it is you can move something. So the answer is, please move, please learn them all, and <laughs> use them with wisdom. Great. So uh, in part two, where you're talking about the secret structure behind the approach of the four iconic entrepreneurs, you tell a story about one of my favorite people because uh, I have been a, a Mac user uh, mm. since there has been a Mac. And in fact, I have told the story many times on this show that I uh, was dating a guy back in, in the early 80s and his brother worked in uh, product development at Apple Computer. And I'm not even sure I knew that Apple Computer existed. But when I went to stay with them uh, on uh, Thanksgiving, they made me sign an NDA to sleep in the bedroom because Lisa, which was the, the predecessor uh, to the Mac, right. uh, was on the floor, right? <laughs> and and so uh been a long-time uh, fan, and, and especially as an entrepreneur, watching Steve build his company, get kicked out of his company, coming back, you know, battling cancer and, and being so brave in that whole fight and being so public about uh, you know, his, his, uh, his, his sickness and you know, ultimately losing that battle. But you talk here about Steve Jobs and the role of the realization entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, again, let, let's hear a little bit about him. I uh, had the great honor of teaching at Sil in Silicon Valley at a university called San Jose State University in a program that crossed over between the business school, the urban planning school, and what was then called cybernetic systems. It would now be information technology. If you came in to get a degree in any of those three programs, you had to study in all three. If you came in to get a, a master's degree, we had a significant number of the early stage. This was in the mid to uh, 70s to um, just early 80s. We had a lot of the Apple entrepreneurs who were trying to learn business acumen. They were really good at design, all the creative things, and so I became a Mac addict as a result. I got to go over into the then small operation they had in Cupertino long before they built all of the right. camps they have now, and I had to sign an NDA. But the thing that I heard, because Steve came in and spoke several times to the group, uh, even, even though I was there supposedly teaching them, he came in and spoke, and the thing he said over and over again, which is what the realization entrepreneur is about. So I've taken the term warrior – and translated into one who's really trying to get something to move and be alive and so to fight the right battles and ignore those that don't make sense. And so that realization process is making sure you really bring something alive, new, really exciting into the, not just the marketplace, but into the lives of people who are going to buy your product. Now, what Steve would say, he said, in order to do this, now I'm telling you what we're going to do is to um, – 
really change the course of history for people who buy uh, digital devices. And that was even called that at that point. It was You even used the term computerless. It was like he had in mind, we will have to get so good that we actually can change many industries. Now, that's in the 70s. And what I found when I talked with other entrepreneurs who are of this ilk, who are really looking at really doing something really amazing, they all know that they actually have to think about how to change the course of an industry, which is very different, as I said, than other entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs who want to create a great product and hope they'll get enough market share, maybe grow it to something that they, you know, uh, can play in the media, but uh, in, in the arenas they want to play in. But Steve Jobs, and therefore everybody who worked for him, spoke of if you want to change the lives of people, change the course of history, you have to change the industry. And that's what the realization entrepreneur works on, and that's where the warrior energy goes into. Wow. Well, I definitely live that one, and I guess it's one of the reasons why he's one of my heroes. And, you know, it's interesting because in this same chapter, uh, you talk about another real game changer uh, in my industry and, and, uh, you know, perhaps not quite so personally in my life, but and that's Richard Branson. And, you know, you you talk about him as uh, in the role of reconnection. Uh, entrepreneur and and you know Richard has has just he's a bit of a, an iconoclast and and he uh, you know he really does what he wants when he wants it because he can right mm-hmm. but he's also a very special entrepreneur. Oh, I absolutely agree. Now, Richard, I don't know. I did know Steve enough that I actually have very different stories to tell about him than the way a lot of people do, and so do people who work inside of Apple still. But Branson. Um, got thrown in jail when he was young out of just stupidity because he created a business that he didn't, was trying to do uh, international exchange, moving things across the channel from England into the continent. Right. And he cut a few corners. Some of those corners had to do with not paying the taxes in the state of or in the country of England. And he got caught because the going in and out, they all got stamps on him, which had infrared. Uh, the word got out and he got caught. And what he said when he was sitting in the jail and he had to have his parents come pay for his bail and then pay tons of fines and then pay all the back taxes on that was, I am never going to do anything that violates my own integrity and all of those people I respect again. And that way he was 20, I think he was 23 years old. I've gotten that. Oh, wow number so that changed him permanently and he ended up as a result every time he creates and of course he's done a massive amount with transportation that's been not only airplanes which we're used to virgin but one of the stories i tell in the book which is most amazing is he decided to build a better train that was safer than all of the and and able therefore to be more on time it was better built uh and he built a, a, a rail line that was uh, running us out of London, out into the north and the south of, and then even eventually across the channel. When he was in Switzerland, <clears throat> he got a call to come immediately that the Pentolino train, which was made off of uh, the, the most modern technology, had been thrown off the track and rolled down into a ravine. And he had, he said, all his worst 
possible images were flowing through his mind. Oh, my God, everything I ever believed in, I probably killed everyone on the train. And then he got there and he <laughs> found out, first, no one had died in the wreck. Only one person, there were a few went to the hospital, but this train had no cracks anywhere in the train. The engineer who was trying to run it and doing the best he could got injured but not killed and was able to go back to running it. And when the um, he was trying to build it, just so you can see how the safety came out, when he was building it, all of the people who came and certified what he was doing said, you're just going way too far. You're going so far beyond the standards and the specs, we can't certify this. And apparently Branson went in and said, you can't sign, sign, uh, can't certify me doing better than you think the best is? <laughs> And they said no. And he said, well, then, uh, you, will you certify me to run the train? And he said, yes, but we're not going to do it at the level you want. He said, fine. I still want to run a train that is the safest it can be and teach people how you reconnect your own values with the values of what you're building. Uh, that's why I call this archetype the reconnection archetype. They reconnect us with the deepest values that we have and how they affect society they then quickly, of course, became the standard. All of the uh, certifying agents had to back down because, of course, all the stories hit the paper. And this was in the 80s uh, or 90s. This was not that long ago. So it tells you something about the heart of this man, which we respect. Now, he's a crazy playboy. He does outrageous things, and, you know, you wonder why he didn't <laughs> die. Uh, but what he does, and all of us, you know, when people give me a bad time about using Steve Jobs and Richard Branson they say as the ideal, I say, well, first, I don't use the word ideal. I say an exemplar of this. But are right. you perfect? Are you perfect? Because if you're perfect, you can tell me I should only use perfect individuals as my story. <laughs> what I want are people who are evolving and growing. So there's Richard Branson. Instead of trying to change an industry, the Reconnection Entrepreneur works on changing social systems from deep, deep within their own understanding, like figuring that out in jail. Right, right. Very interesting. So next, uh, you talk about Oprah Winfrey and, and the reciprocity entrepreneur. Yeah, Um Oprah Winfrey has a particular meaning in my life. I grew up in Texas, and I lived in a very racist world. My father was the head of a regional Ku Klux Klan. He was a judge. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he was a business owner, fairly, you know, you'd call him small business, but he owned lots and lots of land. He owned many, many businesses, trucking, farming, uh, rail yards. I mean, there were so many things that he owned, and he was quite cruel about how he managed people. And then as a judge, uh, he was able to make decisions that really affected people's lives. So much like Richard Branson, I had a childhood story uh, where I tried to confront my father fairly continuously and mostly I was either put in a closet and the door was locked for several hours to try and teach me that I shouldn't be listened to, or they called John Rainey, the local sheriff, and he'd come and lock me up in a jail cell for a few hours. So this was... Oh, my. I know, and I say the only really bad thing that came out of these is I'm very claustrophobic, but they helped me change how I see the world. And when I heard Oprah Winfrey uh, doing one, I think it was the Essence Conference I was listening to in a hotel room, getting ready to go listen to my daughter graduate from Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, and I heard her talking about the agony of you know, living the life that she hit, lived, and I'm not going to tell you all that here. It's in the story. She had an unbelievably difficult childhood. 
uh, she realized some one day that until she could love all people, even those who had deeply harmed her, and see the reciprocity that existed in all the actions in the world, she was not able to step in to really trying to change all of those things. And that what she really wanted to do was change the paradigms that we held, how we thought things were true. How did we get there? How did my poor father, you know, who I eventually was able to forgive, get to thinking what he thought? How did he grow up that way? And she could see it as a cultural process. And so she set out to create as a media czar the ability to have conversations that were so difficult to have, but if we didn't have them, we couldn't change what we believe. Uh, I sat there in tears. I mean, I literally cried for hours. It just it broke my heart and lifted me in a very high way, and I said, I want to do that. I want to help people see how their thinking is driving outcome that is not good for them, nor is it good for a much larger system. So the reciprocity is how whole systems work. That's where I took the term from. If you right. think... Uh, you know, when a, a tree grows little tips that are really tasty, a squirrel goes and chews on those, and the squirrel runs to the bottom of a tree and leaves behind a little stuff, <laughs> you know, which sinks in uh, to the soil and fertilizes it. That grows back into the tree, and it puts out more shoots that the squirrels and others can eat. So it's like this whole thing works together, and if you can't see it as working as a whole, then you can't actually understand how life really works. Right. Oprah seeks to teach us that continuously, where she goes to South Africa and says, you aren't whole unless all of your girls who are here are educated. The system can never rise out of apartheid without them rising with you. So I tell many stories about Oprah, uh, and I got to interview some folks within her operation and get a few more details and got the blessing of them to tell the stories the way I did. I could have done it anyway, but because this one was a very special one, I wanted it to be able to lift up this idea of wholeness, reciprocity, and particularly to do it by changing paradigms, which is really like saying change or open up our belief systems. Right, right. So now we shift gears a little bit uh, to Larry Page, which, you know, uh, is a technologist at heart, right? And now yep. you're talking about regenerative uh, entrepreneurs. So what regenerative means, let me just say what that means first so you know why I talk about Larry Page as a regenerative entrepreneur. Regenerative means to go back to the heart of something, like the DNA. Like a starfish can actually regenerate one of the um, – Arms? I don't think that's the right word, but if right. it's yeah. off. Now, the interesting thing about it is it goes back to the DNA that's there, but it doesn't grow exactly the same, we now know. It grows based on the age, the stage, the evolution of that starfish in the context of the water that it's in. In theory, you know, a forest does the same thing. Even when it has a fire or insects, the other side of the forest starts changing. But what it goes back to is what is this starfish or this forest or this uh, arena about or this child you know, if you're trying to help grow a child at its heart. So regeneration is making sure we go back to that which is most core to us. Now, in this particular book, I really discovered, as I said, I'm still working with Google with some innovation labs and having an extraordinary time. And part of what we're talking about is how do you hang on to the essence of, of Google, because, you know, it was founded over 20 years ago, and it's kind of gotten big. <laughs> and it, right. it's to lose a little bit of its direction. So part was about bringing Google back to its essence. But what Larry Page does is he constantly goes and looks at governing agreements 
and brings them back to their core. So he goes back to the Constitution, and he will propose something that he thinks meets the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. So let me give you a quick example. Uh, and the reason he's doing this is because he doesn't believe fighting government changes things. He says sometimes in the founding documents and the founding regulatory agreements were all we needed. You just have to push people to do it. So, for example, one of the things he did when they were going public they created a radically different going public process. Instead of having Goldman Sachs basically control all of the stock, find all of their friends, sell it basically to them so they could control the price that it entered, they created what was called a Dutch auction, which meant everybody could bid at whatever price they wanted, and it would come down slowly to the people who were paying a lot less money. You know, they might have been bidding instead of a thousand for a hundred shares. They might be building, bidding a dollar for a hundred shares. Eventually, right. even that dollar for a hundred shares got stock. And Larry Page said, what capitalism is really about, and if you look at how the governing ideas about capitalism, and he was a, a big uh, fan of the invisible hand recreated to say that it was good for everyone, like a magic hand. But he said the reason is if you do a Dutch auction, you let everyone succeed, and that's how capitalism really works. Now, he had a founding story also for himself, which really changed how they run business. And he said this is like the, the governing agreement of how you manage. His grandfather was one of the founders of the United Auto Workers Union. And the reason was that he was working for General Motors long before there was such a thing as a union anywhere. Um, they car his grandfather carried with him a very large um, steel pipe that had on the end of it a lead ball. And the reason was because he never had any idea which time his supervisor would come to him and beat him. They carried baseball bats around. Uh, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine now because, uh, you know, if you did that, you'd be put in jail, but they weren't. They eventually locked out all the managers, barred the doors, and formed the United Auto Workers Union and cracked the management's control over workers' lives. Larry Page, I swear to you, still has that club in his office. And he said, I never want anyone to work anywhere again in anything that I have any control over, that they don't feel like they have the spirit my grandfather had, but applying it to something that really makes us a great nation. The unions he felt like really formed because you were trying to break the backs of people. He said, you know, I'm not afraid of unions because my grandfather is a brilliant leader in it, but I believe the real need is to regenerate what it means for human beings to have work. So he now, you know, people can spend 20% of their time working on something that's quite extraordinary, or at least the engineers can. He has uh, organizing processes which say the management is governed by this idea that every individual has something great to contribute, and we have to find what that unique uh, uniqueness is, regenerate it in them, and bring it into the business. And then every day somebody will be bringing us something greater. So what his focus as a regenerative archetype, you know, carrying that role, was to really bring us back to what governing meant, what the essence of something meant, the essence of management or the essence of the Constitution or the essence of a regulatory agreement. <clears throat> and you never hear these stories about Larry Page. He did the same thing with the FCC in terms of it's why we all can own our phone numbers. You can thank Larry Page for that. And you never know about those stories. So that's what I mean about 
for me, responsibility is not a thing like you do your responsible business. It's really how you do everything you do. And you take on different archetypes depending on how big you are making a promise to bring about change. That's Larry Page. Very, very interesting. So we don't have time to go into all of the other stories from the other two chapters, but uh, in part three of the book, or or rather the, the next section, is being the change requires a transformative framework. Can you pick just one story out of the framework uh, section of the book and uh, you know share that with us of, of the importance of framework? Uh, yes, and what this framework, what this is talking about is that in any industry you're in, anywhere, you can start to change another industry, or you can start to change a social system, or you can start to change paradigms and beliefs and governing agreements. So let me take uh, another regenerative one. The guys who founded B Corp, um, they looked at how the current agreements were that shareholders had to always be thought of first, and there was a con- an <coughs> A court case about 40 years ago, which some people interpreted that way, but they went back and reread it, and then a bunch of university professors did, and said, found that, no, you didn't actually have to have investors be first. You really just couldn't rule them out. They had to be considered. They had realized that what they needed to do was actually create a parallel kind of corporate structure to do that. So they were regenerating what capitalism meant, but said it doesn't have to just be what we call a C-corp, which is what all large corporations generally are. And it's a a tax code, which means how you're going to get taxed. And it tends to make sure that the primary and first goes to the investor. The B Corp says all shareholders ought to be treated equal. And there are businesses now which the B Lab is certifying as a B Corp uh, to say they have met a certain set of standards and that they are taking into consideration social uh, considerations, ecological considerations, management considerations, fair trade, uh, fair sourcing of materials. Um, and in that process, what they're doing is starting to really regenerate our tax code. And they're doing much like um, Larry Page did for SEC regulations and FCC choices about disbursement of of power uh, outlets, power uh, choices for digital uh, distribution. What the point is of every one of these stories, and there are 13 stories of ordinary people making amazing changes, all of whom I know well, and so I'm telling their stories from an inside view, even if you know them from some other place. I want people to know that Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, Oprah Winfrey, and Larry um, Page did not start where they are now. I tell their stories at the beginning so you can see what an archetypal energy does for you and being able to drive something for a really amazing uh, outcome. But I want them to see what's happening on a smaller scale. And these 13 people who are moving now, and you will be hearing more and more about their stories because they are each in their own way changing the course of history through changing an industry like construction or changing a social system like how it is that we um, uh, fish and how the whole fishing systems work, changing the food system, and then uh, in some cases actually changing 
institutions like in Afghanistan so that governance will be done really differently uh, as a result of their work. So that's one quick story, but there are 13 of those, two for each archetype, which are really, really powerful, and they'll have you believe, like the one you felt when you were at the convention last Friday, have you know when you read one of these stories where it is that you might aspire and how it is you could start to learn about all of these different archetypes and how they change the course of history. Right, and and so to wrap up, uh, part four of the book talks about the game of changing the game and using these domains and archetypes and communities of of practice to foster change. And you've got a couple of stories here, and I think we we have time for you to, you know, just touch uh, on each of them about the the system of archetypes at work, and, and you talk about being an instrument of change. So the the uh, just in case we don't have time for all of this, I will give you one story, which believe it or not is my best friend. Uh, she and I have founded many things together, and at one point we changed each of us changed directions, and I went toward working with business, and she went toward working with communities. And the business that she has is called Regenesis, and it's now a community of I don't even know how many people, several hundred who enter a place with starting with the regenerative nature of archetype. And the way they do that is they go take a community. I was just with one of them uh, in the last few days uh, in the Hudson River Valley. One of the guys who is a part of Regenesis, he um, does what they do, which is go into a community and help see what's the essence of this community. This is being sponsored and brought together by Etsy.org, you know, the Etsy company that's crafts online and great artisans are there. Um, You move first into a community and before you change anything, if you want to make the economic system healthier, if you want to make the um, uh, entrepreneurial businesses work better, I say you have to start with essence and they say yes and that has to be the essence of a community. So Pamela and the group who are Regenesis Start with helping a community find its own unique identity, its individuated singular identity. So we spent time with those folks looking at what makes the Hudson River Valley, especially the Mid-Valley where we were, sing. What makes people be attracted there? Why do they want to live there? So that's you have to start with working from the regenerative process. That's the really important place to start. Then you begin to look at what we call the gills, the way everything is connected, the way it weaves and works as a whole system. And that's the reciprocity. That's the story I'm telling you about the tree and the squirrel, right, where it's all linked and connected. So Regenesis then moves into finding where is it within that whole system you could enter and do a project. Like in the Hudson River Valley, uh, you know, you really start to get a strong sense because uh, Pete Seeger lived there and Pete Seeger sang there. You start to get a sense of that it has so much to do with really inventing and inventing systems that have small businesses work. uh, And they do so much entrepreneurial work that they have a higher percentage of entrepreneurs than most of the rest of the state of New York. When you find those connections, like Regenesis does with them, and they're leading others to do it, you then start to figure out where do you have to go rebuild bridges. So we had people in the room figuring out where they could be working together, where things could be connected. But that's often where people start. They don't start with what's the story 
of the Hudson River Valley, and where are the reciprocities that need to be built for it to work long before we say, folks, here, start joining together and figure out how to do this. So that's ongoing work now. It's just barely gotten started. But um, So now we've got the regenerative process of really looking at what's the unique essence and how are you going to govern according to that. We've got the reciprocity of how things fit together and are going to need to work together. Now we've got the groups that need to reconnect in the social systems. The last thing to do was really figure out how you build a regenerator for building an industrial strength community so you can change the way industry is done there. Uh, they're building, I love this term, they came up with the idea they're building a regenerator. <laughs> mm. And a regenerator means that you're looking at that place, all of its reasonable and rightful connections, the people who need to be brought together, and now how do you build small businesses out of that? Because so often what you've got is individual businesses building their own, not being able to know how to connect. This ability to be a game changer, so you change how economic systems are built based on having all four archetypes at play, is the work that Regenesis does. And so I love telling their story because they've done this in the Finger Lakes of New York. They've done it in Mexico. They've done it in Europe. I've taken them into many places like Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, When they do that work, that more holistic thing that involves all of these archetypes, you have a community that's lifted and starts growing its own independent strength that can function in up and down markets. It's not a boom and bust uh, process anymore. It literally is changing life for people within a community. So I think that that story is pretty systemically indicative. There's one other thing that I might mention, um, which is every one of these archetypes tends to have a you know, what Jung would have called a shadow side, uh, because, you know, that's why I say, you know, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, Oprah, and Larry all were are flawed human beings, but they're right. not any more flawed than we are. They all have this shadow, and, of course, for Regenesis, they end up having all four of the shadows, and what I mean by a shadow is, like, Richard Branson uh, along with all other people who play this archetypal role, tend to be overly sensitive. So they're constantly worried about whether the people think of them. And it's hard for us to remember that that's still true of Richard Branson, Branson right. because mostly we want to know what he thinks of us, right? And uh, Steve Jobs was very insensitive to other people, and that is very typical of someone who's a warrior. And if you think about it, and you're a warrior, and they're going to send you into battle, you've got to be insensitive to others' lives. So it's something you have to work on. And no, you're absolutely right. I, I actually, my husband and I were watching an old Ronald Reagan movie where he was a uh, a captain of a submarine, and his right hand man uh, was very emotional and very tied to the crew. And and at one point, he had to leave one of the uh, one of his crew behind, uh, or risk losing the entire not only the entire sub but the entire fleet that they were protecting. And, you know, I, I said later to my daughter, who who uh, currently is dating somebody who's likely to go into the military, you know, your boyfriend is just like Ronald Reagan in that film. And, you know, there are good things and bad things about that, but it will keep him alive. And all the people around him, it will keep them alive, too. So, you know, you're right. You, you look at people like that, and, and there there is uh, good to be found in all of it. 
and learning and growth to be had. <laughs> exactly. One of the things I do in the book is give guidelines on how to, that I've seen these folks and how I've taught them to work on the shadow side. And as well, once you've read this book, as you said, with a pen in hand or something, and you start to feel a calling for you, what it is that you have to do. So the last chapter of the book is really about how you take what's in this book and, like for your daughter, figure out how to apply to herself or the guy who's going into the military. You will have restraints. You will have challenges. Uh, And it's important that you know how these people overcame them and what you might do to do the same thing. Exactly, exactly. Well, it has been so great to hear uh, your vision about the entrepreneur. You know, I can't wait. I haven't had a chance to read the whole book yet, but I can't wait to dig into this and and really see how I can tap into each of those pieces uh, yeah. of the puzzle for for my own success uh, in in my responsible entrepreneurial venture. Great. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for your time. And uh, I always like to give uh, our guests the opportunity to share with the audience of how they can best reach you if they would like to engage you on a consulting basis, if they'd like to have you uh, speak at their event. What's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, There are two places, carolsanford.com, which is where my speakers and books and so forth are. carolsanfordinstitute.com gives you a link to my university programs as well as all my corporate education processes. Both of those have ways to get to me, and I love to have conversations with people about supporting them or doing a, a keynote for their association or their business, so please let me know. Great, great. Well, thank you so much. And for those of you who are listening, to find out more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, check out www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. And we will be launching a new new website shortly with uh, all of our audio a little bit easier to navigate. And we would love to have you come back and check us out. Thank you so much for participating today. And, Carol, again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Loved it. Great. Take care.